The Ordovician began 485.4 million years ago and ended 443 million years ago. The massive continent of Gondwana moved slowly southwards, and the remaining landmasses of Laurentia, Siberia, and Baltica gradually began to move towards each other. Small island continents slowly collided with Laurentia to the south and produced the first stages of the Appalachian Mountains. This continental drift caused the Iapetus Ocean to widen slightly, and there were still extensive shallow seas where large collections of sediments eroded into the waters. Like the period that preceded it, the Ordovician was mostly a hot, tropical world. These warm oceans, now bounced back from their previous chemical changes, had many marine niches left open for species to fill. On top of that, the rise in minerals from erosion produced a bloom of planktonic organisms. There was a marked rise in fossils featuring new groups of animals during the beginning of this period, with the number of species tripling from previous levels over a 25 million year time span. This led paleontologists to coin a name for this time, the Global Ordovician Biodiversification Event. The animals that evolved during this period were to set the standard for marine faunas for the duration of the Paleozoic Era, and introduce a number of new modes of living. For the first time, animals began to make greater journeys out into the open ocean, and some groups of mollusks and worms started burrowing deeper and deeper into the sea floor. Reefs expanded in great numbers during the Ordovician, and the main builders during this period were a group of now extinct sponges called stromatoporoids. These were originally thought to be types of corals, because the skeletons were made of dense calcite minerals, much tougher than sponges nowadays. But they were not the only encrusting marine animals around. One of the last major groups of animals finally evolved in the Ordovician, the Bryozoans. Sometimes called moss animals due to their superficial similarities, Bryozoans live in hardened colonies that grow on rocks or the shells of animals. Each colony is made up of several tiny creatures with little tentacles to filter feed with. Their numbers were significantly greater in the Paleozoic, but living species are not as common as other colonial animals like corals. The major groups of mollusks continued to diversify, and the bivalves came into high prominence during the Ordovician. Like the unrelated brachiopods, bivalve mollusks have valve shells, that's where they get their name, and they're filter feeders. But rather than use filamentous tentacles to catch food, bivalves have plates of gills inside their shells, all lined up like a stack of paper. While the brachiopods controlled the deeper regions of the seas, bivalves were more content in nearshore waters where they didn't have to compete for the same resources. Gastropod mollusks were doing well too, and a few of the dominant lineages evolved in the Ordovician, including the ancestors of limpets. Limpets have survived into the present day, and their anatomy is remarkably ancient, lacking the coiled shells of their later relatives. Nonetheless, the conical shells of limpets are excellent adaptations. The animal can stick itself to rocks and completely cover its body with a tough exterior that most predators have difficulty with. The heavyweight champions of the Ordovician were the cephalopods. Although the majority of species today have reduced or lost their shells altogether, the earliest groups had spectacular shells. One lineage, the endocerids, could grow their shells up to 19 feet in length, making them the largest animals in the world at the time. They have been suggested to be major marine predators, using their tentacles to snag prey items, but it is equally possible that some species were filter feeders. In any case, they would have been awkward animals to look at, because their giant shells were full of empty spaces, the center of gravity would have made them float vertically in the water, with their tentacles facing downwards, like living icicles. Despite their losses during the Cambrian extinction event, trilobites managed to bounce back and became more diverse than ever. Great swarms of them roamed the seabed, feeding on all sorts of organic materials. Some groups, when threatened by predators, could roll themselves up into a ball, using their head and tail to completely cover their soft undersides and legs while the other species used their spines for defense. There were plenty of new arthropod predators in those days, with the earliest Eurypterids evolving 460 million years ago, 
Though they look like giant marine scorpions, and are sometimes called sea scorpions, Eurypterids were only distantly related to arachnids. Nonetheless, some species possessed scorpion-like pincers for snipping at prey, and one kind, called Megalograptus, had a spike at the end of its tail, though there's no evidence that it was venomous. Crustaceans, too, were beginning to diversify. The first ostracods and bronchiopods evolved. These are small-bodied animals that swim through the water with their arms or antennae. Ostracods are mostly microscopic and planktonic animals, but branchiopods are perhaps more familiar due to two major lineages, the water fleas and the brine shrimp, popularly marketed to children as sea monkeys. All of the surviving lineages of echinoderms evolved during the Ordovician period, including the first sea stars, brittle stars, urchins, sea cucumbers, and crinoids. Among these groups, the crinoids are the least common in modern times. During the Ordovician, they were remarkably diverse, growing in grooves around calm, shallow seas. Crinoids attached themselves to the ocean floors on long stalks and sported a comb with filter-feeding tentacles atop their heads. They shared their world with other long-gone lineages, including the blastoids, who looked like crinoids but had very pentagonal heads. A new lineage of hemichordates developed that were to become the dominant planktonic animals of the early Paleozoic, the graptolites. Despite their relation to the living worm-like species, graptolites were remarkably different. They were tiny colonial animals, like bryozoans, that lived in hardened tubes that simply floated along ocean currents. These tubes, made of proteins, often sported beautiful patterns and shapes, with some graptolites resembling fans or coils, and others lining their tubes with rows of spines or branches. The vertebrate story continued at a slow pace. By the Ordovician, fish had evolved proper bones and covered their bodies in scales, and the majority of species had gone a step further and strengthened their scales into solid armor. Like most of the other animal groups, these would have proved to be great defense against predation. However, fishes still remained a small part of the ecosystem. They were not apex predators, for they still lacked jaws and could only suck up soft-bodied food from the sea floor. And they did not venture out into the open oceans either, with all species remaining in shallow seas and along coastlines and estuaries. The early development of the ozone layer proved to be a beneficial aid to life on Earth allowing so many different marine organisms to thrive in the oceans. But for the first time ever, life began to colonize the terrestrial world. Up until the Ordovician, the only types of plants were marine species of red and green algae. The only land-living photosynthetic organisms were mats of cyanobacteria that moved under surface rocks to escape the threat of grazing animals. Analyses on living species of green algae suggest that the first land plants developed from freshwater species and survived on land because they adapted their bodies to become waterproof which prevented them from drying out. Fossils from 473 million years ago show plants very much like liverworts, which are the oldest surviving group of land plants today. Liverworts do not have roots or stems, but instead attach their flattened bodies, called thalli, to the ground. Like their algal relatives, liverworts and other early land plants reproduce with spores, which the adult plants release into the water where they land and grow into copies of their parents. This meant that, despite their terrestrial existence, the first land plants were restricted to warm, moist environments. But they were not alone in their travels, because they were soon followed by the earliest land fungi. Fungi had already been around on Earth since the Proterozoic, making up one of the major groups of eukaryotic organisms. In fact, they're more closely related to animals than they are to plants, meaning you have more familiar relations to the mushrooms in your soup than to the carrots or onions. Fungi are mostly decomposers, breaking down dead materials that provide them with nutrients. They had a ready food source when the first land plants began to die, and through their decomposition process they began to churn parts of the sediment, creating soil. 
All land plants today rely on soil for nutrients, so newly growing spores were treated to an increasingly safer environment, thanks to the fungi. Ever slowly, the stage was set for the rise of terrestrial environments, as vast numbers of liverworts blanketed the margins of freshwater rivers and lakes. The good times were not to last, as the Ordovician closed with a major mass extinction event. While the direct causes are still debated by researchers, the changing conditions at the time almost certainly put pressures on marine organisms. Analysis of rock formations around 450 million years ago demonstrate that carbon dioxide levels plummeted, while oxygen levels increased dramatically. As Gondwana moved south and cut the poles, the earth became cool enough for glaciers to form there, which expanded and took in such large amounts of water that the sea levels dropped. Many of the warm, shallow marine environments were lost as a result, as much as 86% of marine species went extinct. Yet again, the trilobites took some serious damage, and their numbers never recovered to previous levels, and there were great losses of brachiopods, bryozoans, and graptolites. What happened to all the carbon dioxide? Hypotheses blame the drop in levels due to the rise of the first land plants, because their sheer numbers on land may have photosynthesized a little too well. Other evidence points to volcanic weathering, causing a drop in carbon levels. Remember, weathering of certain rocks often takes up carbon dioxide. The ice sheets at the South Pole were at their greatest extent during the last 7 million years of the Ordovician, but when the period ended, much of the marine life in the oceans was gone. The Silurian picks up where the Ordovician left off, a relatively short geologic period from 443.8 million to 419.2 million years ago. As the Earth's overall climate warmed up again, the glaciers began to recede in Gondwana, and the sea levels rose. The giant continent itself started inching northwards. By now, Laurentia and Baltica had connected together as one landmass called Euramerica, due to the inclusion of lands that would eventually become Europe and North America. Siberia remained isolated, and the Iapetus Ocean began to close as Gondwana and Euramerica moved closer to each other. As it had done after the Cambrian, marine life rebounded following the Ordovician, but now there were depleted stocks. Trilobites and Graptolites lost much of their diversity, and the great sponge reefs had lessened in number. In their place emerged two types of stony corals that had evolved quietly during the Ordovician. The first group, and the ones that primarily formed the new reefs, were the tabulate corals. They were colonial organisms, like living corals, and formed flattened, table-like structures in great quantities. Among them was the second group, the rugose corals, who could form colonies or remain as single organisms. Their bodies looked like horns, but they often angled themselves in their growth. Surprising as it may seem, Corals are related to sea jellies. Whereas sea jellies adapted themselves to be free-floating animals, corals flipped the body plan over and resided to an existence attached to rocks and seafloor sediments. These new coral reefs became great templates that supported a wide variety of animal life. The iconic invertebrates of the Paleozoic, the giant cephalopods and the frightening Grypturids, continued to stalk the oceans. Among the mollusks, the bivalves managed to radiate into a great number of new groups, given that their main competitors, the brachiopods, faced such heavy losses at the end of the Ordovician. Fishes became big winners during the Silurian period, thanks to the evolution of true jaws. Given that the first fishes were jawless animals, how did this adaptation come to be? Genetic and anatomical evidence points to a change in development of the frontmost gill arches, the parts of the throat that provide support for the gills themselves. These migrated towards the exterior of the mouth, and allowed that part of the body to close and open at will. Given that gills help fish take in oxygen from the water, this ability to work the mouth would have helped them take in more water. This feed is called buccal pumping. These ancestral jawed fishes could effectively breathe faster than their contemporaries, and as a result could swim better too. 
Over time, this adaptation found another function. Fish that had strengthened the repurposed gill arches could now catch and kill prey with their mouths more efficiently. New dietary options opened up, and now the fishes of the Silurian could eat one another. The gill arches became true jaws. This remarkable change in physiology prompted the evolution of all the major groups of jawed fishes, and as a result, the jawless fishes were now about to face some serious competition. The situation on land grew much more serious. As collections of plants and fungi changed the surfaces of freshwater coasts, new plants evolved to join their number. Among the liverworts were the first mosses, which had special structures called rhizoids that gave them some anchorage to the soil. New plants evolved later on, around 433 million years ago, that underwent significant structural changes to their bodies. These were the vascular plants, so named because inside their revolutionary new roots, stems, and leaves was a system of vein-like tubes that could take in water and nutrients and distribute them through their body. This was a more efficient system than what the liverworts and mosses had because it meant that vascular plants had more strength to support their bodies in the gravitationally dominant environment. One of the icons of the Silurian's botany is Cooksonia, which was one of the most common land plants at the time. They were relatively tiny plants, only growing as high as two inches, that had a Y-shaped prong structure. At the end of these prongs were their spores, which they could release into the At the other end of the plant spectrum is the Baraguanathia, which was among the tallest plants on land, growing up to 11 inches high. These plants were lycopods, one of the surviving members of this new flora that can still be found today. They're distinguished among their peers by their covering of tiny leaves all along their stems, which increased their surface area and allowed more sunlight to be captured. Traits like these allowed lycopods and other vascular plants to outgrow their competitors and really change the landscape. But the plants and fungi were no longer alone in their world. Fossil evidence indicates that for the first time, animals began to make serious trips onto the land. Prior to the Silurian, there is some fossil evidence that certain creatures were making small visits to the sandy coasts. For example, trackways have been found that have been identified with Eurypterids and aquatic myriapods like millipedes. But these animals could not have permanently stayed on land because they still breathed with gills, so they had to return to the water to survive. Arthropods that managed to survive on land had underwent mutations that changed their bodies. The first land arachnids developed book lungs that were retained inside the body and took in oxygen from the air instead of water. Other arthropods, like mandibulates, switched out gills for a series of spherical holes along their bodies, connected to an interworking system of tubes that carried oxygen everywhere. Among all members of the group, their joints and limbs proved to be helpful in supporting their weight as they roamed the soils. By the end of the Silurian, arachnids, in the form of scorpions and a now extinct group called trigonotarpids, and myriapods, in the form of millipedes and centipedes, established a presence on land. With new resources like plant matter, some arthropods developed into herbivores, while others took advantage of the new prey items and remained carnivores. It is even possible that the ancestors of earthworms and nematodes were living on land at this time, though their soft bodies would have not preserved well in these conditions. Thus, the first land ecosystems and food webs were in place. To continue this episode, please go to part 3.